You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. This session came about through a conversation with Matthew Kirk of Vodafone, who, for the second year running, are partners in content for Names Not Numbers. And as Matthew Taylor said, it is a very apposite subject, and to introduce it is the chair, who, whatever else she is, other than being qualified to run this session, is about as good example of an individual in a mass age as it gets. She is a polymath. Uh, her nom de plume is Mrs. Moneypenny. She flew here, not in her own private jet, but I don't know quite how she got the jet that she flew here to Carnarvon Airport, but she did. She is the head of an educational charity. She runs her own small business in central London. She has more MBAs and PhDs than you can shake a stick at, including one at another of our partners, Cass Business School. And she writes a now legendary column for the Financial Times, another of our partners. And she is Mrs. Moneypenny. Take it away, Mrs. Moneypenny. <laughs> I welcome to this event. Yes, we have a few correcting points. Julie's only known me for about 22 years, so she probably would get a few facts wrong. Um, I, I do hold only one MBA and only one PhD, thank God, and none of them came from CAS, although I do hold a visiting chair at CAS, which is a very great privilege. Um, but we're, we are here because, of, as you can see immediately, uh, Julia believes in diversity of sex on the platform. Um, uh, and, and also because, frankly, the panel that I was in uh, this occasion last year got a bit dull. So uh, I, was, I was sitting on the end as the last person in the panel, uh, and uh, I had to say ridiculous things just to liven it up because everyone had gone to sleep. So this time I thought I'd share it. Then I can say the outrageous things and ask the outrageous questions. But before we start, I should, uh, I should say that uh, Matthew Kirk, who not only is um, a, a major sponsor of this event, but also uh, is, uh, in my day job, one of my most respected and important clients, uh, is, is going to... Uh, I need to dis disclose all conflicts. Um, I'm, I'm going to uh, actually, actually ask you, Matthew, I think, to, to open. And then when you've uh, finished saying a few words, we will get going. Do you want me to stand up? Well, you can stand up. Yes, I think that would be well, helpful. Okay. Why don't you stand up? You can even um, employ the, uh, the podium. I'm going to come over here. because I... newly, very newly... You can tell this year we've got a bit more upgrade in the sponsorship because the podium is a vast upgrade on last year's it's podium. It's good. It's, it's not very solid. It's a bit <laughs> fragile. Um, very fragile. <laughs> and actually, I'm feeling a bit fragile because uh, I'm in employment. I work for a big corporation. I used to work for the state. And on top of that, I was on the panel last year that Mrs. Moneypenny was on, so I'm also unspeakably dull. Um, so my apologies for all of that, and um, I will try not to bore you too much. When Julia and I were talking about this um, a few months ago, she said she wanted something about the shareholder versus society. Uh, and I tried to persuade her that was the wrong question, and as you can see, I failed at that as well, because... She did remove the question mark, which it had on it before. So it's now a statement that it's the shareholder versus society. And I, uh, I've been thinking a lot about that. And obviously, the context we're living through at the moment, the aftermath of the financial crisis, the questioning of the role of corporations, uh, Nassim, uh, as you have just been uh, saying, 
uh, and the effect of globalization, all of these things are causing a more profound questioning of the model according to which we run our economies and whether that model delivers for society than I think we've seen uh, certainly in, in my adult lifetime. So I started by thinking, is this statement about shareholder and society a statement of antithesis, um, a statement of some form of reverse synthesis, or some kind of necessary but uncomfortable connection? And just thinking for a little bit about what is, what is society, and society is the aggregation of the values, uh, the aspirations, uh, the social needs of uh, of individuals. And of course all of those individuals are different um, and their needs and aspirations are different and they also group themselves within society in different ways according to their politics, according to their interests, according to their communities and so forth. But at the back end of society as it were, the foundation of society is individuals. And shareholders, and just to illustrate uh, as a company, we obviously have quite a large number of shareholders, maybe one or two uh, in this room. Um, we have around 400,000, uh, maybe a bit more, 430,000 shareholders who own fewer than 1,000 shares in the company and a bit less than 100,000 more who own fewer than uh, 5,000 shares in the company. So, um, in fact, the last shareholder I met who wasn't a colleague of mine was a London taxi driver uh, yesterday. Um, so quite a large number of people, around half a million people, not all of them in the UK, who are individuals who have... Uh, an interest in the company. Um, and then we obviously have some very, very large shareholders, uh, institutional shareholders who own hundreds of millions, uh, in one or two cases, billions of pounds worth of uh, shares. And each of those is itself a disaggregation of a whole load of individual financial interests. They're either pension funds uh, or they're investment funds uh, or um, funds of this kind, which have, again, behind them, um, individuals. And so you could say that a shareholder is uh, an aggregation or a representation of the financial interests of individuals. And that ought to lead you to the conclusion that this is a wonderful synthesis because it's got individuals at the bottom of it in, in every sense. Um, and so there ought to be no opposition at all uh, between the interests of society as they express themselves and the interests of the shareholder. Uh, and of course that isn't right. Um, and you do see a lot of challenge. You see challenge partly coming out of the fact that there are a lot of different ownership structures uh, which come under the, uh, the general heading of shareholder. And particularly, there is a difference in behavior between private companies and public companies, a difference in levels of disclosure and so forth, um, and a difference in uh, the, the very small shareholder. I would argue that the artisan is an individual shareholder in his or her own business, uh, and the shareholder in a very large business, such as the company for which I work. You do also see examples where uh, the, the private shareholder, Bernie Madoff, uh, for example, uh, behaves in a way which is certainly not in the interests uh, of, any, uh, of anyone, anyone else involved in his company, and ultimately not of himself. You also see some very striking examples in history of uh, essentially private companies, uh, private uh, family economic interests which make extraordinary social progress and believe that that is in their good if you think of the great Quaker capitalists, the Cadburys, the Roundtrees and so forth. 
So it's clearly not always synthesis, and the interests of the shareholder can lead to extraordinary distortions of what society wants, sending children down mines and up chimneys, uh, slavery, and Enron uh, are quite sort of prominent examples of that. But equally, uh, for society to prosper and function, it is necessary that there is innovation uh, and investment, and that innovation and investment comes through people from uh, the very small scale to the very large scale uh, coming together in some form to try to deliver to uh, consumers, individuals within society, things that they want. And, and that innovation, that push, uh, either through competition or through having something new and different, is a tremendously important part um, of serving society. So my sort of conclusion about shareholder versus society is that they're actually intrinsically and necessarily linked, um, but that link doesn't always work effectively. And the, the push of society and the push uh, of the shareholder interest sometimes get out of line. When they do, fortunately, society has a number of ways of aggregating its interests from community level up to national level and beyond. Um, and uh, through that is able to regulate and legislate uh, the framework within which the shareholder interest uh, is expressed and active. And I think the, the issues arise when uh, the, the consensus, the sort of um, consent to exist of the shareholder structure moves in a way more quickly and therefore provokes a reaction uh, within society more quickly than the legislative and regulatory framework is capable of coping with. And I think the, uh, the financial crisis in many ways was a very striking example of that and the very difficult and hard work which is being done now by financial regulators to try to set a new regulatory system which will ensure that such damage doesn't happen again. Um, very important work. One has always to ask oneself the question, uh, as the military always do, whether they're fighting uh, last time's war uh, or uh, ensuring that the next one doesn't happen. One, uh, two final thoughts, uh, one of which is mine and the other of which is not. Um, mine is that I think that the tone of the debate in the UK at the moment, I, I travel a great deal and uh, as a company we uh, have interests in a large number of countries, and it's striking that the tone of the debate in the UK and to some extent in the US is much more negative um, about the, uh, the capitalist investment competition-based model uh, of organizing an economy uh, within a society than it is in most other countries I visit. Maybe that's because the US and the UK had it in a more extreme form before the crisis and therefore the reaction to it uh, is stronger. But a note of caution there, uh, which is that um, a lot of these things are quite mobile, um, and I say that not just because I work for a company that deals in mobile stuff, um, but mobile in the sense of uh, geographically able to move. And while the UK remains a, uh, a very attractive country uh, in which to operate a company, um, if the sense uh, within a company is of unwelcome uh, within the society in which you're living, it makes it that much more difficult um, to, uh, to sustain it. 
Final uh, thought comes from Adam Smith, <clears throat> and it is, it is this. Um, by pursuing his own interest, he frequently promotes that of society more effectually than when he intends to promote it. If you look at a lot of the innovations that have happened, um, and I very much agree with Nassim, innovation is not generally done within large corporations, but it is very often large corporations who pick up the innovation and broadcast it um, to a very broad uh, part of the population. Um, if, if the impetus for innovation is removed, um, and that impetus is very often one uh, of someone wanting to serve, wanting to produce something that serves customers better, then a lot of the benefit to society that flows from innovation uh, inevitably doesn't happen. Thank you very much. Yes, that's a, a great Adam Smith quote. I'm very keen on that one as well. I, I sort of like to simplify it into the best way to help the poor is not to become one of them. Um, now, I uh, was actually, I'm going to start by asking everybody um, a, a question and getting them to expand a bit. I thought we had some very provocative comments. As Matthew said, we had an excellent uh, warm-up session to this. Um, and uh, I certainly think um, that there are some quotes that... Uh, that uh, um, Nassim made that we would definitely revisit. By the way, everybody, um, I met Nassim at the first time at the Hay Festival uh, <coughs> last year. I was introduced by Julia. Uh, and I offered him a lift here in my plane, and he declined uh, because he gave me the statistic about uh, pro small planes and, not, and you know, black swan events. Anyway, fortunately, I got here. So we haven't had a black swan one event today, and it was a single-engine prop plane, not a jet, sadly, but I am aspirational. Um, can I start, actually, uh, on this panel? I, I, we've got some amazing people um, on the panel. The first uh, person I'd like to uh, speak to is Will, actually, if, uh, uh, if that's all right. Um, you can all read up, of course, these wonderful biographies, but Will runs Brompton Cycles. His products commute on the Digcot to London train with me every day. Uh, not own, one owned by me, I'm afraid, but yet, uh, yet aspirational, as I said. Uh, but uh, what I want to know is, um, I mean, this is a, an example of a company which, you know, on an on a environmental level, does a great deal of good for society and presumably also serves its shareholders. Can I ask, do, who are the shareholders of Brompton Cycles? Well, um, we are owned by Andrew, the inventor, and his friends. They're, we are owned by myself and my mates and by our staff. Um, it's an interesting subject, this, which gets me marginally um, animated. I spent six years <laughs> running um, chemical plants for both ICI and DuPont in the borough. And um, personally, I think that th th there is a great feeling that the business serves its shareholders, whatever large business might say, to the, to the contrary. Um, and that simply is not the case. Uh, the business has to serve its customers and its staff, and the shareholders come along for the ride, in my opinion. And um, the shareholders that we have in a small business are monstrously passionate about the company, uh, are busy bashing everybody over the head, telling them they should be riding our bikes, and, uh, and in many respects bring a lot to the party 
because they're individuals that bring something and they're helpful. And when I'm bashing my head against a brick wall, I can go and have a beer with various shareholders and they're helpful. The problem I found when I was working in uh, the chemical industry was, um, as we've just heard, the individual shareholder tends to have a relatively small influence. And I, ironically, the person who has the greater influence is a fund manager who is managing colossal amounts of individual shareholders' interests and has absolutely bugger-all interest in the business. He is monstrously incentivized to try and get short-term gains in his stockholding. He puts huge pressure on the business to make short-term decisions, probably hasn't got a clue about the technicalities of the business. And in the case of, of DuPont, the board were just didn't have the balls to tell these people to sod off and that they didn't know what they were talking about and that they should be looking at a long-term view and you, you, you can't run a chemical industry on a six-month return. It simply isn't possible. And somehow they didn't say this, so they're running around worrying about, you know, stop-spend, monstrously short-termist views and, of course, wondering why the business spirals and gets into trouble. Um, and that's a very glib view from somebody who knows very little about it, but for what it's worth, here I am, and I'll say that. Um, in terms of our business, we have fun. Um, we make, fiddle around trying to make our bike better. We happen to own it. Nobody owns it outright, which is reasonably nice. Um, but we can sit around the table and make decisions. And once a year, or any time in between, if our shareholders think we're doing a bad job, they can come along and tell us so. And that seems to work in the limited environment of smaller businesses. Once, once, of course, we rule the world, I'll have to rethink. And do you think that you are um, in business to benefit society? I mean, do you think about the fact that this is an environmentally friendly product, or is it just a product that has a market? No, it's nothing... As it happens, it, 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 the environmental thing is, 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 is a nice to have, but benefiting society is the total reason why I get up and go to work. But it was the same when I was running a chemical plant. You know, it benefits society. It just isn't so glamorous. But, um, and I think that's important. Yeah. Um, so, um, Giles, let's um, move to you next. Um, uh, you, when you set up Good Business, I presume that you and Steve actually <coughs> were co-shareholders in this, were you? We in, were. The, in the company? We and were. what happened when, when your co-shareholder just pissed off? How did you... I bought him that. out. You bought him out? <laughs> ah. You were presumably in a reasonably strong negotiating position. Very strong. Uh, it was the day before the election. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> he had only one solution. Uh, yes, I had only one purchaser. <laughs> yeah. <Yes. laughs> um, but you, you did work before that, of course, for companies that had outside shareholders, and you've advised lots of companies with outside shareholders. Yep. Um, do you think there is a big uh, you know, difference between what society wants and what shareholders want? Um, unfortunately, I think there are too many examples of uh, where shareholders and society do not connect. Um, you only have to look at sectors like tobacco that speak for themselves. That you know, a shareholder makes healthy profit, uh, whilst other stakeholders fare less well. So there are so many examples where the shareholder is against society. What's been interesting, I think, in the last 15 years 
with the rise of uh, businesses like Vodafone and others understanding that they do have a, a greater role in society, that they have been taking that role more seriously, looking at the impacts that they have, understanding the concerns of stakeholders, and where possible, trying to minimize the negatives and maximize the positives. Um, and that's done under the banner of corporate responsibility, and quite a lot has happened, I think, in relation to that. The challenge is, is that it can only go so far because it's, it's still being decided by that business. They're still making the decision about how responsible they want to be. And I think that there needs to be a, a sort of another level. And it's interesting when you see those businesses where uh, not that they're just trying to be more responsible about what they're doing, but actually they try to understand what benefit they provide to society, as you say with Brompton, you know, are you driven by a broader, a bigger goal than simply to make money? Where there is a purpose for that organization, you can see that actually it is easier to take away the verses and put the and, the, the shareholder, the more that it, that business benefits society, the more the shareholder will benefit. And increasingly, we're seeing that businesses are beginning to look at what they stand for absolutely at the heart of their business and trying to, to, to drive that through the business to benefit not only themselves but society at large. If you take an organization like Unilever, that's core purpose is to provide uh, uh, people of the world with food that's good for them and good for others, you can see that there's a business that's making decisions based on a number of its stakeholders. It is trying to make the right decision, not just for itself, but for a broad range of stakeholders. And, and that has to take away the verses and, and create a shareholders and society. They can work together. And I think the challenge now is for uh, the sort of the discussion and the debate around being responsible to move far faster and far deeper into organizations to ask what is the purpose of the organization and sharing that purpose with the stakeholders of an organization in order that it can go in a straight line as successful as we want it to be. We all want Brompton to be successful because it helps in so many ways so many of its stakeholders and therefore is a, is a positive um, output from being successful. So I think we have to look at the sort of structure of how stakeholders are involved in, in sort of holding organizations to account uh, uh, in, in order that they can be more positive. Because it, there shouldn't be a versus. It doesn't have to be a conflict between shareholders and society. There is, but I think that it can be less and should be less. I, I just want to take one example um, uh, Charlie uh, uh, was talking last week with me about uh, River Simple, which is a new business based in Leicester. Uh, it's going to do a, um, a trial of hydrogen cars in Leicester. Very exciting business, going to the heart of the world in Leicester. But what's interesting is that their ownership model is that they're bringing their stakeholders into 
the way the business is owned from the beginning in order, as the, as the guy who owns it says, that we have a more collaborative group of partners around us so that we can be more profitable. If the, if the local authority owns part of the business, it's more likely to help it be more successful. So if you can get your core purpose at the heart of your business, uh, one that is shared amongst your stakeholders, then you are able to move further, faster forward, and be a more profitable business, which, after all, we know is the thing that drives shareholders more than anything else, is more profit. So I think that, that, that we're al along the right track, but I think we've got a lot further to go. Um, so on that, keeping going on that line, um, our other Matthew here, um, works for an works for a, a uh, organisation I think has one shareholder. It certainly does. Yeah. Yes. So does he uh, embrace uh, this? Of course, is Michael Heseltine and his family who own Haymarket, which owns management today. Um, and um, do they embrace? Uh, do their interests serve society's interests? Michael Heseltine, uh, famously a man who uh, has had to buy his own furniture. I think um, <laughs> you know that was Alan Clark's comment, wasn't it? Um, well, he's no, bought I mean, his I furniture with, with, the, with the proceeds of, uh, of his publishing empire. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I think Michael, Michael would argue that, that, that his company produces um, products that, 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 that people want out in, in society, not only within the UK, but also abroad as well, and, you know, and, and serves an important function, as one does in the media, providing in, information for those individuals who know it. But, I mean, I think... I was fascinated that you brought up the subject of Cadbury and, and family businesses because that Cadbury did begin in, in that way and the, the arc of what happened to Cadbury with what a lot of people have found a pretty sad end last year it, I think is a fascinating one and does show the disadvantages of the, of the joint stock model, doesn't it? Because it, it, it began and with a family ownership and slowly, that, as the family members sold up and it became uh, um, listed on the market, it, it got to the point, because of the way that market works and the rules of that market operate, that in the final months, there were, there were people who owned or were borrowing the stock who actually actively wished it ill because they were shorting it. So you, you, you do, with that joint stock model, get into some pretty kind of difficult area. And... One of the things I wondered, if, if, if Matthew and his board at Vodafone could start all over again, albeit being the size they are at the moment, if you, would, if you prefer that model, for example, to the private equity model, where you don't have to answer every quarter to these half a million people who ask you all sorts of questions and make impossible demands on you, do you, you know, is, it, is it possible that you could be a greater and more successful company internationally if, if you weren't um, functioning in that way and you're actually able to get on with it without people breathing down your neck on a free monthly basis. So I don't know. I mean, I think one of the effects of, 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 the, of the crisis has been to make people think an awful lot about this. And, and then they start rushing to try and find models that, they, that, that are more acceptable. And it was interesting. I spent the morning the week before last with Charlie Mayfield of, of John Lewis, whom everybody seems to be looking to at the moment as the way to go. And there's a lot of talk about making the, the Royal Mail into something like, like John Lewis or, or Arup is. Um, and in the long run, I'm sure it'd be great if, if the Royal Mail could achieve that. But it, it takes a particular act of generosity by an individual, as it did with John Lewis, to set that up in, in the first place. 
but it also takes a certain sort of culture that certainly doesn't exist within the Royal Mail, I'd argue, at the moment, for something like that to work. If people think that you're just going to give a couple of grand's worth of shares to everybody within the Royal Mail, and suddenly it's going to become like, you know, John Lewis, with everyone smiling at their customers and being a rather well-run organisation, I think you've got another thing coming. You, cl- you clearly have a more uh, consistent view of John Lewis than some of the experiences I've had there. But... Well... Um, no, I mean, I think, well, if you, if, if, if you look at the measures of admiration and reputation among the British public that they have for that organisation, they nearly always top all of them. Yes. Um, I, I think... I, I, you know, personally, I'm a rampant capitalist and, um, and firmly believe in the joint stock model because otherwise uh, firms who want to build chemical plants in borough or um, develop you know, massive R&D facilities will never be able to access the capital that they want if we don't have a joint stock model. But Matthew, are there days when you wake up and think, I wish I didn't work for a public company? Um, well, I spent my first 25 years of my working life uh, not working for a public company, so I'm, I'm relatively yeah, you work, new to you this. You work for an organisation with many more stakeholders than half a million. A lot more stakeholders, than, absolutely. Um, and that had its own complexities and sort of 635 in those days, shareholders who, um, uh, I think Derek is over there, aren't you, Um, somewhere? He was one of them. (laughs) Um, And that had a lot of complications. I think you're you're always accountable to someone. Um, You can't avoid that. And... Is society too amorphous, a mass, amorphous thing? Society has had to to organise that accountability into institutions. And, and if you have millions and millions of people to whom you're accountable, you inevitably have to organise that into, into some institutional form because you can't exercise direct accountability across that range of people. But, I mean, direct answer to Matthew's question, I think that the accountability to our shareholders is a very, very good discipline. Um, it, there is no doubt that it forces us to um, elaborate strategies and express them to our shareholders much more coherently if we are to get the long-term um, element into investment, which is a fundamental part of our business. And we uh, invest for the long-term 15, 20 years to, to get a return on a, uh, on a network. And, and you have to take the shareholders with you to do that. Now, I think that discipline is very good. Are there days when you wake up in the morning and think, gosh, it would be nice if we didn't have to do this presentation? Of course there are. Um, but actually, fundamentally, I think How it's How should you be accountable to people who are trying to short you, for example? Who, are tr- who wish you actively wish you ill as a as a company? How and how do you deal with with people like that? Which which, which if you put your shares out there in the way in which you do, makes you vulnerable to something like that, doesn't it? It well, it does. Yes, uh, that that's true. But I, I mean, it's not something I've had direct experience of in 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 my time in Vodafone, um, and so I, I mean it's difficult for me to talk about. But I think that. You just have to press on doing the thing that you think is right and explaining it uh, and keep explaining it and hope that enough people will understand the logic of what you're trying to do and why you're trying to do it, that they will want to come with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think that, that discipline of having to account and communicate um, what you're doing and why you're doing it is, is a very powerful one. Yeah. Well, um, I but, think... Sorry, just to, I think there's no doubt that a privately owned company finds it much easier to have a long-term view than a, than a public view. What's the Vodafone share price performance over the last year? Um, it's been uh, very nice, thank you. Yeah, so yeah. shorting it would have made nobody any money at all. No. So he, that's probably why he's had no experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, right. Um, I, I actually, the other thing I was dying to ask you, which is apropos nothing at all uh, here, is that don't you have a very famous columnist who's resigned from his day Who, job? me? 
Uh, yeah, yes. we have. Um, I've been in contact with um, Miss M is referring to Howard Davis, um, who sadly um, resigned yesterday from his job at the, as a director of the London School of Economics. And I and I emailed him today to say that to reassure him he re still had his job. Absolutely, because he'll be even more readable, and people be even more <laughs> interested to hear what he's got to say, and therefore read my magazine more when he produced his column as he would at the end of next week. And he's a brilliant writer. I mean, that, that's a whole separate subject, but I, I think if they're going to start having a go at um, educational institutions within the UK who've taken money from regimes across the planet whom people find unideologically sound, then they won't finish with Howard, that's for sure. Well, this is, you say this is a, a different subject, but it's not really. It's about shareholder versus society. In the, in the case of the LSE, it's stakeholders. You know, they, they need the money yep. to run their organisations, and they have taken it from somewhere that uh, the society feels is unacceptable. Yeah, well, or rather his council at the moment feels is unacceptable, yes. whether wider society feels that. Well, I have to tell you, I think he personally, I think he's one of the most readable columnists in well, thank you. today. So um, I hope you will keep Well, I mean, I think he's time. feeling, you know, he's rather mournfully emailed me earlier on to say did, was I, I wouldn't be interested in a column that was about his crocuses and um, stray chickens from his, um, his house <laughs> in Dorset. But I say quite... Anyway, and I'm sure... You know, he'll be back. He's only 60 and he's got one more big public job in him and, and yeah. he'll have plenty to say about that. Excellent. So let's now turn to uh, Cliff, who does work in a large um, educational institution at CAS. Um, and uh, I, I, now, am I right in saying this? Because, I mean, I, I think it's very interesting to ask your opinion on this because I think, unlike um, everybody else on this panel, you've never worked for an organisation that had an outside shareholder. As in a uh, conventional joint stock shareholder? No, I, I have. Uh, as a student once said to me, uh, have you ever had a real job? <laughs> and, and the answer is yes. <laughs> but um, I suppose my job on this panel as, as, a, as an academic is to take a straightforward issue such as shareholders versus society, take that straightforward issue and make it inaccessible and complex is my job <laughs> as an academic. So I'd like to have a shot at doing that for you. It seems to me that one of the problems is that we kind of, we have a, a strange, we, we could have an inversion of this logic. So instead of having uh, business values, shareholders versus society, we could start, instead start from the point of saying social values, stakeholders versus business. And why would we do that? Well, I think we'd do that for a very good reason. What we talk about is how business is a driver or engine of society, which it is. But actually, society is the driver and engine of business. And we often see, think of it in terms of how society can serve business when and not concentrating on how business can serve society. So I think society is a driver and engine of business in all sorts of ways. Business values derive from social values. And, 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 social, and the social and society, society informs business in all sorts of ways, ways that are very uncomfortable. Um, you know, social movements, pressure groups. Um, Harvey Goldsmith in a room somewhere, Rage Against the Machine was a perfect example of number one that through, through pressure, through collective action. We can't ignore society because society impacts upon businesses in ways which we can't control. And I don't think we should. So we should, we should perhaps problematise this in a slightly different way and ask about not what society can do for business but what business can do for society. And I think that extends to things like um, society is a major shareholder. God knows we own significant shares in banks, for example. 
But beyond that, we also have a share in lots of things and lots of organisations. And I just wonder whether we, we talk about the individual in society, the individual in the mass age is the focus of, of this, this forum. We might ask about the society and the individual. So we might reverse some of these questions around. And so, so where am I going with all that? I'm suggesting that uh, business values is not the most interesting and appropriate place to start. Social values are the things that drive business values. So we should look at shareholders in a different light. Shareholders nested within society, which in turn, businesses nested within society. And if you had a question for Matthew, what would it be? This is the man who often represents big business on this panel. What? Uh, you know, what? business that, as um, Nassim has said, you know, big businesses can't possibly have values. Yeah. Why was the panel so boring last year? <laughs> no, I'm only joking. Only that wasn't really my question. But seriously, Matthew, what did you think of that contention earlier that big businesses can't have values? Well, I, I disagree with you it. You tried to address that, I know, when you uh, stood up, but, um, but you know. No, I, dis I disagree with it fundamentally. I think that um, there, is, there are lots of things that motivate people. Um, and finding the common thread of motivation within a big organization is, uh, is always a challenge. It's particularly a challenge if it's an organization that's doing lots of very different things. Um, we're, in a sense, quite lucky in that we do one thing, which is to give people the ability to communicate, and, and that is a huge motivator within the organization, and everyone sees themselves as playing a part in that, um, and that builds a common value set, which, which, is, which is a powerful motivator. And that what gets me out of bed in the morning is uh, particularly the stuff we're doing in Africa and India, which is changing people's lives every day. Um, and I find that hugely exciting. Um, and lots of other people in the company do too, who have less to do with it, less directly to do with it than me, but they know about it and they understand that that's something that we're doing. So I think you can have values in a big business and you can make them work for the business. I also think that you will only succeed in delivering value for your shareholders if you apply those values to uh, delivering value for your customers. Because if you fail to deliver value for your customers, the revenue streams dry up and your shareholders do rather badly. So um, the, the sense that businesses are all focused on their shareholders the entire time, I very much agree with, with that. I think that's just completely wrong. Uh, you have to be focused on your customers if you're going to do the right thing for your shareholders. Yeah, I might, I, Agreed. But it's, it's when things go a bit pear-shaped that I think the institutional shareholder model gets on a bit of shaky ground <coughs> because the, the means by which and the speed by which the shareholders can exit in order to hop across to something else that is looking like it's on the up while you're on the down. It's a bit like marriage where if it's too easy to divorce, you know, everyone's going to get divorced. We have shareholders and, you know, we have to deliver to our shareholders. I mean, friends of mine have shoved a load of money and I feel a bit, dis you know, a bit guilty if they went and lost it all. Um, but the speed at which they can get out of our business, there's such a variety of shareholders, is, 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 is not, doesn't describe the reality. Um, if we, the commitment from our shareholders, they, they've taken a decision to invest in our business. They understand what they've doing, they've put in a reasonable amount of money into our business that they believe in. Institutional investors, most people are shoving their money into their pension. I've got a clue what they're investing in. They don't know whether it's Vodafone or this, that, or the other. There is no 
real understanding and commitment. So if we have a tough time, I think our shareholders will, 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 will stand by us to a point. If we're crap, then ultimately they'll mobilise themselves and get rid of the board and find a different management team. But, but I think when things are going well, the, the current model works, but which is maybe the point that was being made earlier, where these large organisations don't last forever because when things start going wrong, the vultures come in, we get shorts, short-termists, you know, I'm running off to make money, I'm not interested in society, and I'll, and I'll, you know, take as much money out of you and jump on you and bugger off somewhere else. And I think, you know, I, I do think that it's, um, you know, 50 years ago, the, the, the average man, the middle classes didn't really invest in businesses. People who invested in businesses had money, they, they had a stockbroker, and they knew what they'd invested in. Nowadays, everybody invests, but they unconsciously invest. And the power and the, co the conscious investment is given to somebody else whose incentivization is so short-term, and I think that's dangerous. I think I just link that to what Asim was saying earlier about innovation as well, because I think one of the effects of what you're describing is that it makes uh, big businesses more risk averse yeah. um, and if you have that confidence uh, sort of more immediate relationship with your investors you can explain the risks to them and yes. if they feel comfortable with them you can take them and you've you've shared the risk it's much mm. more difficult to share the risk when you're doing it through a range of institutional investors I think that's, that's right isn't it that's why large businesses do find it very difficult to be innovative because Innovation, by its very nature, is disruptive, isn't it? It's going to cause trouble for an organisation, increase risk levels, get you going in a different direction, where, in my experience, the larger organisations are, you know, the more inclination you've got towards a steady shift. I mean, it's a, it's a very difficult thing if you're a large organisation to take a great big risky move in a particular uh, direction, because all, well, the, all the forces are for inertia, often, rather than for gain. Charles? I think except where you have organisations that have a very strong set of values because they've got a very clear purpose. And, and, that, and I think what's interesting about the discussion about values is that organisations have a very different set of values to individuals, but they do as a group. They can find new values together that is much greater than the sum of the parts if there is a strong core purpose of why the hell they're there and what they're trying to do. So, do, so would, you, would you then absolutely disagree with us, in that, that big organisations can't have values? They absolutely can have values. Right. And those more successful organisations, where, uh, where you can see when you walk into an organisation, like take John Lewis, uh, even if you have had some bad returns <laughs> uh, <laughs> experiences, if you go anywhere in that organisation, there is an incredibly strong culture a set of values about how they do what they do and, and, and the way in which they do it. And it doesn't matter who you go and talk to. I think you get that same strong set of values coming from those people. Now, it could be that it draws that type of person into the organisation because everyone's aware and understands John Lewis because it's a, very, uh, it's a business that, that we all understand because it's been around for a long time and it's in lots of our communities. But... I think the key thing is when, when an organisation really works is when it has a strong set of values and a strong purpose that people know where it's going. And, that, and that's when it's then positive for both society and for shareholder. It's driving in the right direction. 
I think, yes, I think my um, personal views of John Lewis are all highly coloured by being a working mother of three school-aged children and trying to get served in the school uniform queue in a very quick <laughs> turnaround. Normally the day before yes. school. Take your ticket, Take your ticket and wait an effing long time, yes. Um, uh, what, I, what I was interested though, also in Atom said, if you remember earlier, that it, these days it's more about fitting, uh, you find that people try and fit their ethics to their job rather than their job to their ethics, although I suspect that Brompton is a very good example of where everyone's doing both. Um, but from the outside, looking in at all of these, I mean, you're teaching every day about businesses and cases and using real-life examples. Do you sit there and think businesses don't have values? I think it's how we define values becomes interesting. Values as core sets of beliefs or values as something which are enacted in behaviour. So what I see in John Lewis, for example, um, I describe more as a set of behaviours. So it's, it's, it's the degree of commitment, but it's enacted commitment. It isn't a set of core values um, in a way that, you know... So, so that there, there, are, there are values which are enacted and there are values which are deeply embedded in the psyche about... You know, not doing harm to other people, etc. So uh, I think we have to delineate what we mean by values. Social values are more enduring and deeper. Business values are more transitory and more operationalised. Mm. I mean, in my day job, in my business, we don't have any outside shareholders, which uh, Mrs Moneypenny reckons is because, uh, you know, as Mrs Moneypenny, I particularly like not having any outside shareholders. It means that if I want to shoot 22 days in every given game season, I can, and no one can tell me not to. Um, but on a more practical basis, everybody has shares, rather like Brompton, and, um, and we have lots and lots of stakeholders, including clients. In fact, you know, clients drive our change. You know, we spend a lot of our profits uh, developing um, black and ethnic minority graduates to put them into the communications industry, and we would not have done that. I didn't wake up in the bath one day and have an altruistic moment and think, I must go and buy a Brompton Cycle and start a foundation. Uh, it was because our clients drove us to, to finding those candidates. And that's, you know, that is what ends up happening. Is it isn't about shareholders versus society, in my view. It's about shareholders and society. Yes. And that's, I think, the, the main thing. I think we ought to now... The key time, by the way, everybody, is that it's now 20 to 7, and at 7 o'clock we will finish. Um, and so we've got 20 minutes. My brief was to get the panel to debate with each other. Have I done that? Yes, you know, she who must be obeyed in the front row. Um, so we... Um, actually, th those, uh, so I'm going to take questions. I'm going to stand up because I can't see a thing with these lights shining in front of me. All right, uh, let's, Peter, let's have three questions and we'll start. Peter, what question do you have? Oh, you need, yes, you need the microphone for two reasons. Number one, I'm deaf, and number two, it's all being taped. We're going to take three questions and then... We'll I don't think... This is, oh, yeah. I want to make some observations, and I'm going to preface them um, with, uh, with the declaration that everybody must make, which is I've spent most of my working life as what Malcolm Forbes would have called a capitalist tool, meaning I worked for profit-maximizing quoted companies. However, I'm aware that one of the great fudges of the last 30 years has been to try and convince people that shareholders and society were practically one and the same thing. And it's one of those things where you say, you know, uh, um, heads I win, tails you lose. Um, sometimes, in practice, that gets reversed. Let's take the whole business of the wicked MPs. 
And what the MPs did with their expenses is, we know, was very wicked and very fascinating and, and utterly bad, and it was good to have it exposed. But between friends, because we're in a room where everybody knows the national average wage is 100,000 a year, actually, it was, in most people's terms, peanuts, and it was created by Bob Mellish saying, we can't give you more money, lads, Look at the expenses, get piled in. Now, a little while ago, I heard Ben Brogan of The Telegraph talking most eloquently about what they'd done and how admirable it was. And I thought, that's terrific. Ben, I've got a little idea for you. So I put my hand up and said, how about this one? Um, the conduct of the top people in the top quoted companies, what their rewards are and how are they affected by remuneration consultants and all that stuff. And the reason for The Telegraph doing it was because a lot of the people who read them back pages, old codgers shareholder pages in The Telegraph, are likely to, to be directly or indirectly invested in those businesses. And a great many more stakeholders are too. And so I said, wouldn't it be fascinating? Here's, here's great stuff for The Telegraph to power right on into. Would you do that? What do you think his answer was? Do share us. Share with us. A simple two-letter word. No. Well. I think that's rather telling. I'm, I, like you, are gung-ho for capitalism in some ways, but not utterly. And I think if it's not intelligently criticised and analysed from time to time, it really will eat itself. Uh, can we just go use the microphone on this side of the room first and have one question from the gentleman at the end there and then one from the lady in the uh, lime green cardigan or yellow cardigan, I can't see. Um, I'm James Crabtree. I work for the Financial Times. We didn't talk very much about politics here. Nassim, in his talk, um, seemed to be saying that an answer to a lot of the problems we have is a more artisan-led economy. But over the last couple of years, it seems that in many cases, actually, we need a more regulated economy. If we want our banks to work better, we need tighter regulations. If we want Vodafone to charge us slightly less when we go to Europe for our phone calls. Um, so what role do you think regulation and the, the state plays in this? And have we got the balance of that wrong? Right, let's, we'll, keep, we'll hold that question for a minute. Um, Claire Fox. Um, Giles, I was interested when you said um, you use the example of tobacco as a good example of where you've got a shareholder um, versus society, not necessarily doing stakeholders any good. Um, you know, I, I'm, I, one, I declare myself as a smoker. I'm not an idiot. I choose to smoke, and they're doing me a great deal of good, as it happens. It's a product I like. But I was more interested in the kind of moralising of certain companies. I mean, I gave a talk to a school the other day, and when I was talking about innovation and R&D... The uh, sixth formers said they thought it was brilliant news that Pfizer had closed down because they were bad, you know, pharma. There's a lot of discussion about the arms trade. Now, it's easy to say, well, you know, I hate the arms trade, but goods are not all, um, guns are not always used for bad reasons, right? It depends what side you're on and depends who's shooting and so on and so forth. But I'm just making the point that I think that we've got very moralistic, and I don't want to be walking around thinking that the only companies that are good for snarty are ones that I like the products of. That seems to me to be self-righteous and unhelpful. And then I just wondered more broadly that it's not just innovation, as Matthew, you said, that comes as a broader good for society from big corporations. But it seems to me it's economic development. I mean, more broad, you know, there is no such thing as the leisure for art. There is no such thing as 
lots of things that we think are civilized or infrastructure um, if you haven't got economic development and you only have to go to the developing world to notice that. As it happens, that seems to me to be the best uh, answer in the kind of value states rather than people trying to kind of be, oh, I don't know, socially worthy about what business can do. All right. Okay, we'll do that side of the room in a minute. Let's just have a couple of points here. One is about regulation. I think we're all, um, certainly in my day job, we do an enormous amount of putting people into jobs for regulatory work. And, of course, Matthew and many of his former colleagues in the Foreign Office are now in um, big companies for exactly that reason. But, Matthew, how important are governments in what Vodafone does? Um, hugely important um, as... The first thing to say, if it wasn't for regulation, Vodafone wouldn't exist because it required regulators to break up the monopolies in telecommunications for companies like Vodafone even to start. So there is a fundamental role for the regulator, the legislator, as the representative of society in deciding how they want to fix the way in which the market is going to operate. Um, and, and I think you can see that in the debate over financial services sector regulation at the moment. That essentially, that's about where, where do we, what do we want the box to look like within which uh, the financial services industry operates. Um, and I think, but I think I would, I would say there's a sort of balance between regulation and competition. Where you have a, a perfectly competitive market, you have companies trying to appeal directly to, against each other, uh, to the individual, um, <coughs> whether the individual is an individual individual or a corporate individual doesn't matter, but they're, they're trying to perfect what they do to keep the cost of it as low as possible, the quality of it as high as possible, the speed of delivery as good as possible, make it as modern, all the rest of it. So the good comes through competition. Um, where the, uh, the regulator needs to intervene is where competition is somehow failing uh, or doesn't exist, um, as, as in the monopoly case. So I think it's very important to keep that balance. I think if you over-regulate, um, then you lose the stimulus of competition, you lose the benefits of, of economic development uh, that Claire was just talking about. But if you under-regulate, um, then you allow monopolies to exist and you lose the benefits of competition uh, in the opposite direction. Um, how does regulation <coughs> affect you? I mean, presumably more bike lanes, very helpful. Anything else? Um, personally... Um the less regulation, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Um, in our experience as a little business, people try to do things, and the government does try its best, but in doing so, it, it, it fixes one problem and buggers up another. We've got a black box R&D opportunity coming, which works beautifully for the, um, chem for the sort of, um, people in the pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical industry, because you create a little pill and all the R&Ds in the pill and your revenue comes back. Well, if you're in the bike industry, you don't want a patent and it's a bit of a bike and the whole thing's a mess. But, but, so less is more for me. But we were talking about this on our very short trip from London today um, in the bus. <laughs> you and, should have um, come with me, you know, yeah. 135 miles from Oxford Airport to... Here, well, I, I might come with you on the way back, actually, if you're offering. Okay. My bike folds up, fits nicer in the back of the <laughs> um, But um, I do think that in the... We were talking about I have friends who are in the city earning 300 grand. And they're, I've known them all my life. No disrespect, but they're not that clever. 
and they're farting around, moving stuff on a computer screen and getting paid 300 grand. Now, I pay my staff, some of whom are extraordinarily highly skilled. They've taken a three-year apprenticeship, and they are masters, and they are being paid 25, the very best, topping out at 30 grand. And if I was paying my staff 200 grand, I wouldn't be selling a single bike. So the regulation of that industry is clearly not competitive. It cannot be that you can have a room full of people being paid 300 grand. That's not competitive. Therefore, that is when I think the government ought to step in and split up some of these operations. Unfortunately, they are, as we were hearing earlier, the businesses have got too big and the government's afraid to do so. It needs to cause a bit of disorder in these big organisations. That, that would be my contribution. Well, the, right, so one other point over here is morals. I mean, my personal view about investing in tobacco shares, by the way, is that if they didn't exist to invest in and if pension funds weren't stuffed full of them, we're going to have a lot of very poor old people. Um, uh, but what, on the morals front, can I just ask, is there any teaching about morals or values at the business school? Tell us what you do about that. You're raising the next generation of business people. Uh, not as much as we should be doing, I suspect, across the board. Uh, I, th I think you can have courses on ethics, corporate social responsibility. You can teach good practice. But ultimately, it needs to be more than embedded in business. It's, it's about values that extend beyond that. And I've kind of sing the same song. But, so I, I think that for a lot of people in, in business schools taking MBAs and other master's programmes, they see ethics as something which is a rite of passage and which is uh, interesting, important, and play an, a part in business. But I don't think that they are seen as central to business in the way that we might like them to be. What I mean by that, let me, let me kind of explain it a little bit better. What I mean by that is that ethics become part of a unique selling proposition. So, that, you know, we are an ethical company. Now, that's a good thing, that whatever reason ethical behaviour is good in and of itself, but it's driven by something other than a deep commitment to ethical issues on many occasions. Just last word on ethics, on uh, morals? It, it is really, it's a really tough one, and it is a good question. You know, if, if the tobacco company was here, they'd say, well, you know, it's, it's legal, and actually we do an awful lot in the way in which we do our business to be as responsible as possible. Be it supporting tobacco farmers in Africa through to um, you know, distribution systems, et cetera, and supporting the livelihoods of many Fair people. Fair trade tobacco. Uh, exactly. You know, it, so you can have res responsible <laughs> bad products, in adverted commas. Um, I think that there's a broader point, though, which is that as a society that is constantly evolving its position and its sort of how it feels about things, that things don't stay as they were. Things change. And as you get more information about certain products and what they do and the unintended consequences that they have, that certain stakeholders you know, want to do something about them. And at some point in time more stakeholders, groups, are negative about something than positive about it, then you need to start finding ways to do it, be that through regulation or be it through businesses trying to innovate to develop and evolve their business to provide more positive so, products. So you're saying some products become much more acceptable in the eyes of people? 
Well, some become much more acceptable, some become much less acceptable. And the point about a business is to continually adapt to meet the changing sort of uh, expectations of society in order that it can positively continue so to do what it wants to do. I do think this thing about changing expectations in society is very important. I do notice that Julia is carrying about the handbag designed uh, by the company where the wife of the Prime Minister works. And that would have been completely unacceptable probably six or seven years ago. But now, you know, we have the... The new uh, status symbol. Very nice it is, too, by the way, I should make, point out. Can, can right. I just say one more thing about moral support? I think that actually businesses that have a point of view that actually it gives it personality, what they do like, what they don't like, what they think is good, what they think is bad, which may sound moralistic and that they're taking a position on it, at least it's like the people who you like the most are those people that actually got something to say What's the most terrible thing in business is that they don't have an opinion about any, anything. They want to sort of be liked by everyone. And I no, think no, we know it who, is important. The people we like the most are the people who find us the most interesting. Oh, yes, that's <laughs> very true. <laughs> um, right, can we have some questions on this side of the room? Uh, Robert, first. And, oh, yes, yeah, so if you want to go first, and then Robert, and then we'll come forward. Um, Peter Kellner from YouGov. I mean, plainly, if a company produces good quality products or services at a reasonable price and it treats its employees well, both society and stakeholders win. I'd like to raise the issue of taxation. When Philip Green puts a company's wife's name to minimise his British taxation, when Amazon sends me uh, a book or a, or a DVD from the Channel Islands to avoid VAT, when a company moves to Ireland to minimise corporation tax, when large companies use tax havens to minimise their tax bill, my question is this, is there any room for values in a company's tax arrangements, or should you simply say, for the sake of our shareholders, we will cut our tax bill by whatever legal means is possible without having any consideration of the uh, general corporate uh, citizenship and your responsibilities that flow from that? Do values have a role to play in your tax arrangements? Um, well, let's hear Robert's next. You obviously don't have to move to the Channel Islands to minimise tax at your box. Um, Robert Phillips from Edelman. Two, two quick points. One, thanks to Cliff for a shameless plug for my thought for the day tomorrow on citizen capitalism. Uh, appreciated. Um, secondly, trying to, to bring together Nassim's point about the magnificent. Uh, Will's railing, quite rightly, against short-term uh, interests. And, um, uh, and Matthew Kirk's point about meeting the shareholder uh, driving a London taxi cab. And the question really goes to, to Matthew, which is, you listen to the taxi driver as your customer, but how do you listen to him as your shareholder? And how do you bring more taxi drivers properly into a share-owning democracy within Vodafone? Okay, let's keep going. Two more eight questions at the front, um, and then we will answer and we'll, we'll wrap up. <coughs> um, Sharma Pereira, I just wanted to pick up on what Cliff was saying about turning that around so that you had society at the front of the statement. Um, clearly there has been a huge change and shareholders are feeling the opprobrium of the public. We've seen it with the banks. Uh, we've seen it in the estates with BP being forced to not pay out its dividends uh, at huge cost to pension funds. What we are seeing is that actually there is a mood right across the world where people are, or politicians are, responding to the anger of the public. UK Uncut, I think, have been... Uh, certainly demonstrating at Vodafone um, and at Topshop and uh, at businesses across the nation. There is 
quite clearly a mood of anger. There is quite clearly a social climate for change. Politicians are responding to it. I'm not a shareholder. I've not worked for any large corporation. And I'm curious at the way that the entire debate has raged around justification for uh, the way that shareholders are put first. Oh, yes, we can have a project in Africa. That makes it all right. Um, I, I feel there's a huge social change coming through, and I'm just curious to know, when you do your SWOT plans or whatever, where does public opinion feature on those plans? And when you're, when you're planning your risk management and your PR, um, you know, you've seen how people can change things in, in the Arab world. That's all going to sort of start feeding back into here. What are your long-term plans for meeting the demands of... Uh, a very angry public. Um, Neil. <coughs> um, I think we need to get some on. Okay. Get everyone to answer something and then we will Neil, have Neil Stewart, uh, Neil Stewart Associates and uh, a shareholder in uh, Julia. Um, first of all, Adam Smith, <laughs> just to take Nassim's <laughs> point that, um, um, you know, Adam Smith didn't write books about economics. He wrote books about political economy, uh, emphasised that there were a whole set of choices and the economics shouldn't be reduced to mathematics um, or, you know, the water machine that's in the basement of the London School of Economics, and that these things interact very, very powerfully. The other point that Nassim made was about shame. Um, it's not really shareholders versus society. Shareholders and society have been the losers in the crash. The point is the management class uh, stole basically as agents themselves and have shown no shame and that's why in the United States and Britain they are still derided. Politicians have been put through shame, they still have a long way to go to come out of it. The shame that they went through for tiny sums of money compared to the protected and lawyered up uh, people who showed no shame. Now I don't like tobacco but I can listen to the economic argument for it. What I can't stand is the shameful marketing and selling to children for which they should be ashamed. And this shame issue, this acceptance by individuals at the highest level, not talking about stakeholders or generalizing it, the behavior of key individuals who now seem to be distant from the society that they live in, living above it, is, first of all, it could be a physier in society, but it's also producing all these uh, uh, consequences. So in your industry or in your company, what have you seen that you're ashamed of and what have you done to put it right? Right. Uh, I, I, <laughs> very good point. I also love the idea of being a shareholder in Julia. I'm a stakeholder in Julia. Um, uh, the, uh, can I, um, I... I think, actually, we had... You know, taxation and change is a very key issue at the moment with UK Uncut, of course, campaigning on taxation... And, uh, and people like the taxi driver, Vodafone shareholder person. But I think what we ought to do is, is you know, come down on the end of the theme is, you know, what about shame? What about responsibility? Have we seen people taking responsibility? Let's actually start this with this, Matthew, who um, are you seeing any individuals, any the management class who are, after all, your, your biggest stakeholder, yeah. um, uh, you know, are any of them taking responsibility for things? Well, um... I'm kind of wondering where that ought to go, really, because if, if, if you're suggesting that the general management class within the UK sort of goes around in a hair shirt for the next 
few years for the sins that they've committed, you know, from 2007-8 onwards. I don't think it's going to get, you know, any of us very far. What we've got to do if we're going to recover in this country, actually, the one, the one way we're going to get back into growth and, you know, in, employment and back to the sunny uplands is through business, not doing it down the whole time. Now, I, know, I mean, the, the, there clearly are, you know, problems specifically with the banks, but, but attacking the general business class is not going to get anyone anywhere. I mean, I think that the issue of taxation is a, is a very tricky one. I mean, clearly it looks awful with, with you know, f with Philip Green having his arrangements as he is, but there's nothing he has ever done that has broken law. He's far too clever to do anything that, 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 would, that would break the law. And if you look at the other organisations who have very carefully arranged tax um, system, they, they work internationally, and I, I know many people out there hate, hate it as an argument, but it is true. If, you know, if they feel they are getting rough treatment and general opprobrium in this country, they can go elsewhere. They'll go, they'll go you know, to Singapore, Hong Kong, or, or wherever, and I think we've just got to be pretty careful about turning on business um, in, in, in that way, because... They, they have a duty to their shareholders, and if they think the environment in this country is, is that negative, and indeed government starts listening and, and, and actively has a go at them, then they will start moving away, and that won't be in anyone's interest. Will, do you think that you'd ever consider moving out of the country? Well, um, we're rather bound by our staff, so we can't be shooting off anywhere too soon. But the, the, the shame argument, I think, is quite, quite an interesting one. Um, I think that historically larger organisations were able to, um, we talked about this on the same short journey, amazingly how we fitted it in, I don't know, but um, <laughs> we, we talked about the fact that historically larger organisations could present a brand of their business and the brand was, was, was something that most of us by some miracle believed, you know, all the people in Asia are busy trying to be white and all the people in... Europe are trying to be brown. God knows how they got away with that. But, um, and, but now that we have communication and we have blogs and we have Twitter, the ability for larger organisations to plaster what is, as far as I can see, large amount of, in many cases, untruths about their business um, is becoming more difficult. So I think, actually... The society as a whole, and I think there's been a disconnect between society and shareholders because you get, coming back to this pension thing, people are becoming shareholders and investing businesses they didn't even know they were investing in. And if they knew as an, in, as an investor that uh, BP is digging up half of Nigeria and pumping most of the oil into the river, um, they, they wouldn't invest, but they don't know that because they're investing in a pension plan that looks lovely and then that's doing this and that and the other. So I think, naturally, this is going to come out that organisations are going to have to do a lot less lying and they've got to be a lot more honest about their operations because if they don't, they're going to get caught out. And I think, I think that's a good thing. I mean, well, our philosophy is, is, is we just basically try and make good bikes and that's, the rest of it comes from that. Okay. Just on those last couple of points, I think the point about taxation and the one about shame is exactly why regulation won't work. You can't regulate shame unfortunately, and we know how difficult regulations worked in the tax, in, the, uh, in terms of taxes, that, that you introduce new measures and loopholes are then constructed to meet those new measures. So I think regulation isn't a way forward. Shame, should there be a shame? Yes. But it's driven by, not regulation, it's driven by 
values outside just business values. So, uh, you know, I find myself in agreement with a lot that's been said. And that's not anti-business, not, that's not bashing business, it's helping business, because business needs to respond to societal pressures. We live in an age where the, it's, it's foolish not to. You can't not respond to those social movements and those pressures. Charles, last word on this? Um, two, two very quick points. I think tax, morality, fundamental point, if you say you've got strong values, if you um, say that this is how we feel about you know, the world and what we're doing, you can't then, on the other hand, other bits of the business or other uh, policies not be delivering that on that. And I think that will be found out and it will be, uh, you know, over time those things will be ironed out. They, they have to be because, because of the, the, the pressure from stakeholders. So I think increasingly we certainly uh, are seeing businesses think more about those areas uh, like tax as in that the, they may have be, been able to get away with it in the past but they certainly don't feel that they are uh, um, in the future. On the shame point, it's just more complex than that. We, we work for Lloyd's Banking Group, and I can tell you 99% of the people who work in, a, in that organization don't get paid a lot of money, do a pretty good job on the high street of trying to look after people's money and be there and open and, you know... Now, they, they didn't know what was going on out there and that whole massive crash. It was literally nothing to do... You know, they had no concept of it. So for an organization to say, you know, the middle classes should be shamed by what they've done, I think is, it's, it's too simplistic. I think there were some people who knew what was going on, and, uh, you know, those sectors need to be held to account, but it's not everybody in them that I think needs to feel shame about what they were doing and how they were doing it. Right. Um, and, well, Matthew, I was going to uh, ask you to say a very last word and then get Julia to close, or are we going to... Yeah, I can close? Yeah, you can close. Right, okay. Matthew, would you like to say something before we go? You started. Would you like to finish? Um, well, I sort of sensed in Peter's question a slight invitation to me to say something <laughs> about tax. <laughs> Maybe. Um, but I'll start with the shame point, because I think it's very important. I mean, I don't know how people who worked in the financial services sector feel, whether they feel ashamed or not. I have an idea. Um, I uh, wasn't in it. Um, but I... I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about the experience we've been through over the last couple of months. Uh, we have a major operation in Egypt. Uh, we face some hugely difficult decisions within the company about how we should behave in Egypt as between the interests of our customers and our legal obligations to the Egyptian government, which was in the process of collapsing, but doing some fairly uh, unpleasant things while it was doing so. Um, and I, within that the, the question of what was the right thing to do um, and how we would feel about what we were doing, the, the group of us who were taking those decisions, was, was hugely important to us personally. Um, and so I think it's perfectly possible within a big <coughs> business context to have that sense of responsibility, to have that sense of rightness. And as I say, I've, you know, I've lived through that over the last six weeks, and it was really really difficult. You were trying to balance um, the, uh, the risk of, of imprisonment and that kind of thing on the one hand against uh, risks to, to customers on the other. On, on the tax point, I, I mean, firstly, I have to say this, we pay our taxes. 
Um, there is a real difficulty in the way that the British press, and again, it's particularly the British press, presents the tax of big multinational companies based in the UK, which is that they always put uh, the global profit of the company um, and then the amount of UK tax paid. And for us as a company, there is no relationship between the two. Um, about 5% of our profits are made in the UK, um, and our business is subject to taxation wherever it happens. Um, so I think there is a real, uh, real difficulty in explaining to people why it is that you have a profit figure that's that, and I mean, uh, the way it was presented the other day for, I can't remember which bank it was, is they pay 1% of their profits in, in tax in the UK, or, or whatever the figure was. But I actually think it comes back to this question of how society manifests itself. Society, in the case of the United Kingdom and taxation, corporate taxation, society through Parliament has decided to set a particular tax regime which is designed to encourage businesses to invest in the UK. Um, and that has a number of attributes to it which make the UK a very, successful, a very attractive place in which to invest and a lot of investment has come into the UK as a result. That's a policy choice taken... Uh, I don't know whether it was by the last Labour government or by the previous Conservative government, but it's been in place for a long time. Um, and businesses take advantage of that. Incoming businesses who are investing in the UK take advantage of it. That's good for the UK. Businesses who are based in the UK, like the one I work for, also take advantage of it. Um, now, whether that is the right balance is not a question for us as a company to answer. It's a question uh, for the UK government and the UK Parliament to answer, if they choose to change the tax laws, we will abide by the tax laws, whatever they say. Um, so, to me, the values in the taxation system are not in the payer of tax, they're in the designer of the tax system. Uh, and the tax system has a set of values within it for individuals and for corporations. Um, and you operate within that system. Well, thank you very much. Well, change is coming. We're about to leave the room. And, okay, we'll see you all back in the hotel before 8.30. Thank you.